welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. We're so glad you can join us. Today on Brussels Sprouts, we're talking about the German election. Uh, on September 26th, voters across Germany went to the polls in an election that determines the next federal chancellor of Germany, given that Angela Merkel is stepping down after nearly 16 years in office. And with the ballots counted, the center-left SPD won the most seats in the Bundestag and perhaps uh, gives the SPD the best chance of forming a coalition under Chancellor candidate Olaf Scholz. But, and it's a big but, the SPD and the CDU-CSU finished just 1.6 percentage points apart, signaling that this is going to be a drawn-out negotiation process. Uh, and the outcome of it is still uh, highly unknown. The ultimate results of these ongoing negotiations stand to have significant consequences for both Germany's domestic priorities, as well as its relations with Europe, the United States, countries like China and the world at large. And so to talk about all of these issues, we're really excited to welcome Jana Puglieren and Sophia Besch. So welcome to both of you. Hi, it's great to be here. Very quick introductions. Uh, Jana is the head of the Berlin office and senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. She directs ECFR's Reshape Global Europe Project, which seeks to develop new strategies for Europeans to understand and engage with the changing international order. Uh, she has advised the German Bundestag as an expert on arms control and non-proliferation. And Sophia is a senior research fellow at the Center for European Reform. She works on European defense issues with a focus on EU common defense and security policy, European defense industry cooperation, NATO and German foreign and defense policy. And she hosts her own podcast, the CER podcast. So we're so glad to have you both. Um, I'm actually very excited that we were able to grab a slice of your time as I know you both in the last couple of weeks have been talking nonstop about nothing other than the German election. So I know we've got the two right women for this um, and we're, we're excited to have you. Um, I was hoping as we always do, um, if you could just set the scene for us and kind of take us back to the election itself and tell us a little bit about the political context that the election was taking place in. You know, what issues were front stage what were voters voting on? Um, what, if anything, surprised you about the election and its outcome? So Jana, maybe we can start with you. Yeah, I get the easy questions and then Sophia takes the hard ones later. Um, so maybe uh, as an overall um, conclusion, I think the political center uh, in Germany was uh, strengthened and this is a good thing. Uh, I get a lot of questions, um, especially um, uh, from other European countries, but also from the United States, how polarized is uh, Germany now after the election? And I think there is not uh, a huge um, degree of polarization because actually the fringes um, had lost. Um, the very left party called the left, um, even to an extent that they could not um, pass the 5% threshold that we have in our constitution. Um, they will enter parliament nevertheless because they won three direct mandates, um, but um, they are severely weakened. Same is true for the right-wing AFD, although um, they are still um, kind of in, in double digits and they are very strong in the countries, uh, the Länder, as we say in German, the kind of German states of the former East Saxony and 
Turinga, um, where they came out first, but more due to the weak uh, CDU than to their own strong performance, although their performance was still too strong, if you ask me. At the same time, we see something like the Netherlandization of uh, German politics. Um, so we see that the so-called Volksparteien, uh, the CDU, CSU, and uh, the SPD, lost significantly compared to earlier elections. I mean, the, city, um, the CDU uh, had kind of the worst uh, result in their history, and even um, the SPD, which got kind of a better results than last time, uh, only um, reached 25.7%. So compared to, I don't know, earlier decades in German history, um, this, is, uh, this is not very... Um, yeah, I don't know, this is not a great result for, for these parties. So we see more and more parties uh, polling between, I don't know, 12 and yeah, 25, 26%. And so the, the center is actually, uh, gets more contested. Um, and yeah, maybe, maybe Sophia, you want to follow up because I, I could talk about this forever, but <laughs> maybe uh, Sophia, you want to add uh, something. Um, well, perhaps I subscribe to everything that Jana has said, as I tend to do. Uh, perhaps just to add that we're in an interesting situation now where the two um, big 10 parties, the CDU and the SPD, have uh, lost out. Um, and smaller parties, the Greens and the Economic Liberals, the FDP, are in a relatively stronger position now because they can function as what we tend to have called over the last week, the kingmakers in the coalition negotiations. Um, they, whether or not they jump across the aisle, the FDP to join a center-left coalition or the Greens to join a center-right coalition, they will have quite a bit of um, sway over the coalition negotiations that are to come. I would also just say that in this podcast, I'm assuming that we're going to, as you uh, introduced, Andrea, at the beginning, uh, keep in mind all the coalition options that could come to pass. I do see a strong momentum behind the traffic light coalition right now. Olaf Scholz and the Social Democrats are seen as the winners of this election together with the Greens. Uh, I mean, Laschet, if there is a clear loser here, it is, is him and, and the CDU. And so there's strong momentum, I think, behind a, a center-left traffic light coalition. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the differences in the parties and kind of during the course of the campaign, um, you know, you had heard that, you know, there wasn't, that parties weren't staking out, you know, dramatically different positions on a, a several key issues. So could you kind of just give us a little bit of education on the parties and, and how you would characterize some of the differences between them? Um, I think that would be helpful as, you know, especially, you know, things like the, like the FDP, for example, perhaps special spouse listers aren't as familiar um, with, with some of the smaller parties as they are with the CDU, CSU. Okay, I'll take this. <laughs> um, so I think we have a, a strong consensus generally on the basics of German foreign policy in Germany, at least between these four mainstream parties. They all agree on this idea of Germany as an inclusive power, an honest broker committed to multilateralism, committed to the EU, committed to NATO. Um, and as you have rightly said, foreign policy has not played a great role in the election campaign. Um, Germany's role in the world uh, and in Europe were not big topics in the debates between candidates. 
there were other issues that issues that voters cared about more. Um, first among them, I think uh, the climate and how Germany will um, manage uh, its climate policy over the next four years to a lesser extent the pandemic. Now that's the same in most countries. Uh, the elections aren't won on, on foreign policy, but at this time around, I think candidates have explicitly avoided talking about foreign policy because if they had done so, they would have had to talk about some very uncomfortable new realities that Germany is facing, which would not have won them many votes. And we should get into how uh, some of the uh, traits of the Merkel course of the last six years might not be uh, possible to pursue over the next four years. In terms of um, what the parties stand for, just very briefly, uh, the conservative CDU as a traditionally a transatlanticist uh, party in Germany uh, prioritizes the strong relationship with uh, the United States, um, is the party that most vocally will stand up for um, higher defense spending in Germany and sees itself as the party of the Bundeswehr. Um, the Social Democrats have been very um, short-lipped on their foreign policy vision, I think, this time around, and that's partly due to the divisions within the party. They put forward a centrist, pragmatist uh, chancellor candidate, but their party leadership is much more left-wing. Um, they've been quite dovish on, on Russia in the past, uh, strongly committed to European integration. The liberals, the FDP, um, also traditionally transatlanticists, but actually uh, very detailed in their proposals on how they want to strengthen the EU and European defense parallel to uh, strengthening NATO, um, which we should, I think, talk about. Uh, and then the Greens um, have made uh, the most hawkish foreign policy pitch, which might surprise um, some of your listeners, though I think you've talked about this in, in previous uh, sessions already. They pursue quite a um, values-based course uh, on foreign policy hawkish on Russia and China because they come at those countries from a, a human rights lens, a human rights angle. They would most uh, strongly align themselves, I think, with the U.S. narrative of uh, confrontation between authoritarian regimes and democracies in the future. And then all those countries uh, as I've said, strongly commit to the EU, strongly commit to NATO. The consensus and the overlap is strong, but there are nuances in how they want to get to where they want to go. Um, thank you very much for those uh, uh, those words. Uh, I, 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 think, I think what you've laid out in the background you've provided the Brussels sprouts listeners is going to be very helpful because I, particularly those here in the US, probably not so much in Europe, but in the US, and in Washington, where there's been a lot of press coverage of the elections and analysis of the elections day after day. Um, that might be just a Washington thing. I don't know. But but I think I think it's certainly noticed in the U.S. and commented on. And I think that'll be very help, helpful. But uh, Sophia, let me um, let me ask you a question. Um, you you hinted at this and I and I don't I don't know if I picked up on it right or not. But but here in the U.S., um, we are it seems every month things get a little bit more dark. I don't know what, what you think, Andrea, but there's been some pieces. Uh, Bob Kagan wrote some, a piece that's been well noted and and, and increasingly some hand-wringing about you, the U.S. political situation, not just in terms of polarization, but that it's not fixable and that, and that we are entering into a historic period here in the U.S. when when the, the, the politicians on either side um, are facing some big major problems in the United States that um, 
uh, that we're not going to be able to really get a handle on like we might have in the past to fix things on here or there. And it's almost coming to blows. And it's just, it's, it's really a very anxious time, I think. Uh, but I, I don't think you were hinting at that necessarily about what was coming out of the, the you know, the German election, but, but it, it sounded like you were saying some things that um, in the post-Miracle age, there's issues uh, in, in Germany, there's societal issues or cultural issues uh, that the politics of post-Miracle will, will not be able to handle as well as she did, or that she would, would have, you know, had she stayed chancellor. Could you expand on that a little bit or is there, are, are you're not, again, you're not as dark, I think, as we're becoming here in terms of our politics, but, but are there some things happening in Germany that, that might sound familiar to American ears? That's a really interesting question. Um, so I think, let me start with the Merkel era and the, the Merkel legacy and where she's leaving the country. I think she's was a crisis manager known above all for that, that has won her a good reputation abroad as an anchor for stability, unpretentious, pragmatic leadership style. Um, she's managed to produce largely consensus-driven politics, and I think she's held the German angst uh, at bay. <laughs> so there, the outlook in Germany hasn't been quite as, as dark as you've um, described it because people have felt safe with Merkel, but also her policy of muddling through the day-to-day -day politics has left Germany without much of a strategy to tackle big future challenges like the decarbonization of the economy or catching up on digitalization, which are really crucial for Germany to future-proof its outlook uh, as a country. And um, those are the topics that have really been decisive, I think, in this election campaign, and all parties have put forward positions on that. On foreign policy, I think, you know, Merkel hasn't been known for, for major speeches or decisions. She hasn't put forward a big vision of, of Germany as a, as a country in the world. But I think um, some of the pillars of German's foreign policy outlook have started to look a bit shaky in, in recent years. Um, for decades, Germany has operated under the assumption that we exist within a rules-based international order that's built on open trade and that Germans can always rely completely on the security guarantee of the United States as a protector of Europe. And those German home truths, I think, are no longer as guaranteed today as they were um, in the past. And that means that some of the tensions and contradictions in German foreign policy become harder to sustain. And I think people are picking up on that. So some of those tensions Germany under Merkel has tried to pursue a value-based foreign policy without sacrificing economic opportunities in authoritarian regimes like Russia or China, right? And Merkel's support for Nord Stream 2 or the CHI, the Chinese Investment Agreement, are examples of that. And we've also always tried to pursue European integration while being Washington's favorite, right? So an example of that is German ostensible support for European defense initiatives while renouncing strategic autonomy, or the difficult situation that Berlin has found itself in over the course of the AUKUS debacle recently. And I think this German course of strategic ambiguity, which Germans have felt very comfortable with over the last few years, is going to become harder to sustain over the next years. And the next German chancellor will have to make some choices. So while foreign policy maybe wasn't a big topic over the last few months, it will become a bigger topic in the years to come. Well, you know, it's really interesting what you said. It made me think, uh, 
you know, that was consistent, and I'm sure Paris was just very frustrated with this as, as Macron was driving towards strategic autonomy and driving towards uh, more EU and less NATO, if you will, or more EU, less US kind of things. It was always Germany and Merkel who, you know, she had to, you know, you know, say, understand where Macron was coming from, but she didn't, you know, jump into it, uh, as you were saying, she didn't jump into full full-throated support of Macron. She was always trying to keep a balance. Do you think, I, I know we don't know what the government's gonna look like, but would there come a day, maybe in the next year or two, where suddenly Macron would find Germany supporting him more on strategic autonomy or where that balance all of a sudden might shift? And so um, it's not that Germany will become anti-NATO, anti-US, you know, employ the kind of rhetoric that we've heard from Paris really. Um, in the past, uh, but um, but in fact, uh, would come a little bit closer to the Macron position when it comes to Europe and to strategic autonomy. Autonomy. Uh, let me just just to add, and Yana, to put this to you. I mean, I think this is one of the key themes, uh, and probably you know one of the the central questions coming from Washington is that question about how much change versus continuity we'll see coming from the next German government. And I, there's so many issues. I mean, Sophia, you just laid out all of the challenges that will face the next chancellor, the next government, European defense, China, um, Russia, tech issues. So maybe we can pick off a couple of these and just talk about where you think Germany is going on some of these issues. And, and Jana, maybe we can start with you in terms of, you know, just to pick up Jim's question, you know, what do you think is in store on EU defense? Maybe let me start with the continuity or change question, because I think it's an important one for Germany. And as uh, Sophia has said, um, there is a lot of emphasis on continuity, especially looking at uh, Armin Laschet's campaign, but also um, at Olaf Scholz's campaign. Both um, basically tried to um, portray themselves as Merkel in a suit, um, also on foreign policy. So Armin Laschet is on record saying that he wouldn't change anything when it comes to Russia or China policy. And Olaf Scholz is also uh, more likely to pursue a kind of Merkel's China policy um, than, than a, tr a transatlantic uh, or, or an American one. So. Um, a lot of continuity, I think, especially on foreign policy, is to be expected, also because we Germans, we don't do revolutions um, only once in a while, but uh, usually not. Um, and, and this was, I think, not a change election for many. But it's an interesting, there's an interesting phenomena because there is a generational gap in Germany. Um, if you look at um, young people and how they voted, they um, voted um, mainly for the um, FDP and the Green Party, so the first generation voters, um, basically 46% uh, taken together voted for these two parties, and those parties uh, stand for change, um, much more than, than the CDU and the SPD. So younger people obviously are attracted by the promise of change, and older people um, like continuity. Unfortunately, the German average voter is 56, so <laughs> a lot of uh, emphasis on, on continuity. When it comes to the EU and Macron and all this, though, um, I think it's I think um, looking at the two possible options for coalitions. Um, we need to, to go back to the narcissism of small differences, but um, there are differences. So I would say that a traffic light coalition with the SPD in the lead and the Greens and the Liberals is 
more likely to wholeheartedly embrace this narrative of, we don't like to say strategic autonomy, but all three parties have talked a lot about the need for more European sovereignty, uh, a stronger uh, Europe, uh, Europe being more capable of acting. And so I think a traffic light coalition would be less scared to antagonize the United States. Um, they, they, they don't see it as a, a zero-sum game. It's not either kind of emphasis on the EU or the United States. It's, it's both um, still, but, but I think there, there will be a lot of emphasis on the EU level and also especially when it comes to European defense because um, for the Greens and also I think to, to an extent for the SPD and the FDP, kind of the EU stamp uh, on it um, takes the edges away and makes it less, less toxic um, for, for, for their own audience, especially for the, for the Greens and, and also for the SPD. So um, I think we, see, we will see a lot of uh, commitment uh, in rhetoric when it comes to boosting uh, European uh, defense uh, and, and capabilities and all this, and it will get difficult looking at the nitty-gritty uh, details. So my intel from France says that Macron was actually very much looking forward to a traffic light coalition, but more on topics like um, further development of the Eurozone, um, fiscal union, social union, all, all, all these topics, and not so much when it comes to European defense, because um, there are many, many critical questions. Um, the, the Green Party in the past has been very skeptical when it comes to the major um, initiatives that the EU has just put forward, especially the European Defence Fund. Um, they were very critical that there are not enough conditions uh, for, for the money that, uh, that is given to uh, European defence companies. Um, when it comes to the European Peace Facility, the Greens were highly skeptical. Um, uh, about the idea to train and then equip uh, partners in, in third countries in uh, critical regions, um, because again, uh, not enough uh, conditions. And also when it comes to uh, topics like um, arms exports, for example, for um, jointly developed um, projects, the, the Greens and the SPD want to have much tougher and stricter rules. Um, and, and that will maybe, be not so good news uh, for, for Paris when it comes to joint armament projects. Um, I think also when it comes to missions in the past, um, that there have been problems with um, the Greens and the SPD, at least, um, for example, when it comes to uh, what, what the French like to do uh, most uh, recently to do these uh, military missions out uh, outside of the EU um, format uh, and outside of the NATO format, uh, the Germans don't like this at all, but I think a traffic light coalition would be even more skeptical. Um, and yeah, maybe I leave it here and uh, hand over to Sophia. Sophia, if I could just jump in real quick, and, and Andrea, thank you for letting me have a three-finger thing on this. I, what you said is fascinating in terms of the impact of a traffic light or an, in, an impact of the Greens on what's happening out of Pittsburgh. You know, they had the big Pittsburgh meeting and all these working groups in the EU and the US were going to do all these things. And, and as I was thinking, thinking through the findings of Pittsburgh and what they wanted to do, um, the Greens on the one hand and their skepticism that you laid out about things like training and sort of thing, and what the US might want to, you know, might want to offer in terms of you know, our export controls and things that are that are pretty strict and, and make it hard to partner 
uh, with us, third country transfer, this type of thing. It's going to be interesting to see how a new German government within the European Union con has concessions and makes deals and negotiates with the United States to come up with things where we can partner together. The politics of the new government and the politics of the United States, I, I, it's going to be interesting to see how that works itself out. It's going to be pretty complex. The Greens on the one hand, particularly, and then the U.S. on the other hand with things. I think, maybe, maybe not, but it just seems it's going to be really interesting. So anyway, thank you. And Sophia, over to you. And Andrea, you get the next five questions. I'll, I'll back out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let me briefly uh, come to the strategic autonomy question and then maybe also the continuity versus change question. Um, Jim, I think you're right that especially the politics of, of arms exports and just how open or closed the respective markets are on defense uh, industrial projects is going to be really hot over the next four years. And we're going to find out just how much the transatlantic relationship is built on that client-customer relationship uh, in the defense industry as well. But just more broadly and picking up on what Jana has said on the different outlook on the strategic autonomy that we see among German parties, I think we this is a really interesting manifestation of talk is cheap, right? So under the AKK conservative defense ministry, uh, she has really denounced strategic autonomy outright um, uh, publicly in op-eds and speeches. But there has been a lot of, I think, quite constructive dialogue between the German defense ministry and the French ministry because she has pushed higher defense spending. She has pushed for joint procurement projects. And the French were able to work with that just like the Americans were able to work with that. More difficult is uh, rhetorical commitment to strategic autonomy, but then a lot of hesitancy over joint arms exports, uh, joint procurement projects. And then just on this question of, of continuity versus change, um, I think what we've seen quite a lot uh, over the last few days is that people have taken the party platforms and sort of of the different parties and put them next to each other and made up their dream coalition treaties uh, based on what we can take um, in terms of foreign policy positions. And if you do that for the traffic light coalition and you take the foreign policy chapters, you find that the SPD does not say very much. The Greens and the Liberals say a lot. They're quite hawkish, values-based, strong on China and Russia, committed to EU defense. So you end up with predictions that they will massively shape the German foreign policy codes over the next four years. But I think that that's limited in its predictive potential just because the question is, will they actually prioritize foreign policy in the coalition negotiations? Are the Greens and the Liberals willing to give up ground on the topics which they campaigned on, which is the climate, decarbonization, fiscal responsibility, and tax cuts in favor of foreign policy? I think that's unlikely. And that also implies that their first priority in terms of jobs is to go for ministries in their area of expertise, right? The Greens will want climate and climate-related ministries, transport, agriculture, the FDP will want finance. And then even if, which is not unlikely, the Greens do get the foreign ministry, we still have to ask who in the party gets the job because we shouldn't forget about the fact that the parties in question are not necessarily united on their foreign policy positions, particularly the SPD and the Greens have put forward the pretty centrist chancellor candidate, but they have pacifists, um, dovish, factions uh, within their party still. That means that personnel questions, so who gets the minister posts, who will lead the parliamentary groups become really important. And then finally, and perhaps most importantly, the money questions, right? The Bundeswehr suffers from underinvestment in equipment and personnel. We all know that the German defense procurement system is dysfunctional. And there are choices that this government makes uh, over the next four years are going to determine whether Germany is able to 
hold up its NATO contributions, fulfill its pledges to its allies, and keeping in mind that the Liberals' focus is on fiscal responsibility and the Greens have an inherent skepticism of the military is questionable if they are going to increase defense spending. And so I think we can dream about the changes in German foreign policy technically and on paper that are going to happen. But we, if we look at resources, and if we look at jobs, I'm a bit more skeptical. I have a two finger. Um, I subscribe to everything that Sophia has just said, but there are two other um, aspects. The first is that um, when you look at the Merkel era foreign policy, the big portfolios, Russia, China, um, were, were dealt with in the chancellery and not uh, in the foreign ministry. So whoever gets the foreign ministry um, risks to end up like Heiko Maas. I mean, to be to be a little provocative here. So um, it, it's interesting to see um, uh, what the dynamic will be. Um, on foreign policy. The second uh, finger uh, from the two finger is um, kind of coming back to, to NATO and um, what to expect. I mean, um, the Greens have openly opposed the 2% goal. The SPD is not in favor. The only party that basically had embraced it is the FDP. But as Sophia has said, um, they, they don't make this uh, the hill they will die on. Um, and, and another big question for NATO uh, is, of course, nuclear sharing, where uh, none of the parties uh, is yeah is really uh, convinced um, that this is the future. I mean, most convinced maybe is the FDP, but the FDP a couple of years ago was a, 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 wanted to get out desperately. So that is another um, area where I see uh, potential trouble when it comes to NATO and the transatlantic relationship. So I want to um, get to the China question in, in in the context of continuity and change. But before we do that. Um, I, I want to ask and you know pull the thread a little bit more on the AUKUS and Afghanistan and some of these events that we've seen here over the last several months. In our previous podcast, we got the French view of AUKUS and kind of what that means for transatlantic relations. And I think it would be really helpful to hear kind of how different parties have reflected on what has happened in the last couple of months in the state of the transatlantic relationship. I mean, I... My sense is from the United States, you know, the way that we talk about it in Washington is it does seem like it has catalyzed a lot more vocal support for the idea that we need a more militarily capable Europe. It, it seems like that, that it's, and, and, and along with that, that there needs to be some sort of kind of fundamental redefinition of the transatlantic relationship. I do sense that there is building momentum here in Washington behind that idea. And I just wonder then, you know, what that perspective looks like from Berlin. How, how have, you know, AUKUS and Afghanistan, what has been the response? And do you think that that has the potential to catalyze whatever government comes in next to think more deeply about what the future of the transatlantic relationship, will there be appetite, it may be not a revolution, but to actually start making progress on redefining the terms of the transatlantic relationship? So looking at AUKUS and Afghanistan, I think from a German perspective, Afghanistan has been the bigger blow um, because we were just much more engaged and because yeah, that th this, this military mission um, was really important for, for Germany and also for, for the development or the evolution uh, of the Bundeswehr over all those years. So um, I think this was the bigger shock. Um, AUKUS, um, I think there are... Uh, 
when you ask how the parties reacted, I think this is difficult to tell because there were a lot of different reactions even within parties. For example, um, two reactions from, from the CDU where kind of uh, Johan Badefuhl um, said that uh, the, the kind of this is a blow for France and, and he um, he is uh, in full sympathy with uh, what, what the French um, said about the transatlantic relationship, whereas Norbert Röttgen um, was much more cautious and says that he understands the uh, Australian decision and that we should not, um, that this was more a, a simple how strategically irrelevant uh, the Europeans or the continental Europeans had, had become. So I think there is still a lot of soul searching underway um, when it comes to the transatlantic relationship. Um, I mean, it was so cozy and comfortable for us in Germany and the, the idea uh, that the kind of original offer is no longer on offer um, is, is still, um, I think, uh, difficult to digest for, for many uh, politicians. But looking at the Greens again, um, they have, I think, innovative ideas how to reform the transatlantic relationship and extend it beyond the topic of security and defense. But to um, yeah, to, to focus also, I mean, not only, but also on other areas like um, like on climate. How can we um, deal with climate change uh, together? What can we come up with? And also, um, kind of technology and innovation. Um, this is this is what they had put forward in a in a proposal that uh, Robert Habeck and Annalena Baerbock uh, presented um, during the election campaign. So. I think there is now the sentiment that something needs to change. It's the third president in a row now that kind of who signals to us Europeans that the US is no longer willing to play this role as the world's policeman. It's not unilateralism, it's not isolationism, but it's it is American foreign policy uh, kind of oriented uh, towards the, the, the American national interest uh, and, and, and kind of narrowly defined national interest. And I think the Germans are trying to understand that they, they need to react um, to this. And I think that the path um, that, that the Germans have chosen and will, will also be the path for the future is not is, is really to try to strengthen the transatlantic relationship and the European Union at the same time and try to make the EU also a better partner uh, for the United States. So a, a, a double strategy kind of, we need to become uh, more uh, self-reliant and, and more capable um, to, to hedge, but also to become a better partner. Wow, well stated. That's... Um... That's amazing. Sorry to jump in, but it's good. Maybe just to add add on what Jana has said. So I think that the German reactions on AUKUS and Afghanistan have been really muted. <laughs> I mean, a couple of people have spoken out, but really in the European comparison, we've let the left the French out to dry on this one. And that makes sense from a conservative perspective because they don't want to affront the US, but even the SPD and the Greens have not jumped at the chance of supporting the French because I think they're not convinced about either military interventions or arms deals. I think that Jana is right that the much more interesting work over the next four years in the center-left coalition is going to be on the added geopolitical value that the EU can bring to the table. So on geoeconomics questions, on questions of trade standard setting, um, I think they are going to make Europe a much more attractive partner for the United States, hopefully. But on defense, there isn't, <laughs> we import a lot of our strategic debate from our allies, right? We look at what does the US wants us to do? What does France want us to do? What does Poland want us to do? And then we try to find 
a middle ground and a compromise there. And I think AUKUS and Afghanistan are manifestations of the fact that we're being pulled in very different directions at the moment. <laughs> and uh, the US, while possibly even open to uh, a Europe that leans into the French um, vision a little bit more, also doesn't really have a blueprint or a master plan for European defense anymore because the priorities are somewhere else. And as long as nobody is providing guidance, I don't think that in Berlin right now we have the time and the people <laughs> and the sense of urgency that we uh, will provide the guidance ourselves on defense. Wow. But yes, even though, absolutely. maybe just, just as a last point, um, even though I would think that this would be a great opportunity for this next government, because what Merkel hasn't done is put up came up come up with a counter proposal to the French strategic autonomy pitch right a proposal that includes central and eastern european countries that builds perhaps a bit more on nato than an eu defense industrial initiatives i think there'd be fertile ground in central and eastern europe for that there'd even be fertile ground in paris for that france over the last two years has become much more agnostic and pragmatic in its own approach to eu defense pursuing bilateral and intergovernmental formats outside of the eu yeah. so i think if there was willingness in berlin to pick this up, to make this the identity and the big project of uh, the next government, then it would it would find a lot of friends both in, in Europe and presumably in Washington. I, I want to add something because I think Sophia is right. Um, coming back to, to AUKUS and our reaction and the big silence from Berlin that not many people have spoken up and kind of I mentioned two, but those were also exceptions. But there is one fundamental sentiment that I want to share with an American audience, um, and this is um, that a lot of Germans don't understand why um, France needed to be insulted the way it was. And whether, so, so the German understanding was always, so the United States is looking for partners in the Indo-Pacific and is looking for Europe basically to join forces with uh, the United States. And so I think while a lot of Germans understand um, kind of the reason behind AUKUS and, and, and don't question this, um, a lot of people simultaneously don't understand why um, France needed to be offended the way it was offended. And if that is not more harmful than beneficial for our kind of joint endeavor, because there are still a lot of people also in Europe who want to join forces with the United States, who want to work with the United States to, um, to deter China. And so I think that this overall um, perspective was somewhat lost in Washington. So the people uh, that had kind of decided on the on the China portfolio or that, that are working on this portfolio, I don't know how much they know about Europe or how much they still um, have the Europeans as partners in mind. And this is an open question that I've heard from many uh, Germans. So are we still considered a partner in exactly those areas uh, that Sophia had mentioned, kind of when it comes to geopolitical competition? Uh, we, I mean, not, surely not as kind of hardcore military uh, allies, but I mean, we cannot provide, I think, uh, the necessary capabilities, but but as a, as a, as a partner when it comes to containing um, China in other areas. So are we still seen uh, as someone the United States wants to work with? This is an open question. Yes, I, just, to, just to jump in and Andrea, thank you for the opportunity. I, I wholeheartedly agree with you on your analysis. I, there's, and I think there's some nuances to it and, and I, I won't take up everyone's time on that, but just to say that um, 
I, I think the Biden administration um, is very strong on Asia. I think the people in the White House who work Asia are very strong personalities and have a lot of power. And I think when this AUKUS thing was dropped on their plate early on in the administration, the uh, Asianists in the White House ran with it. Uh, and I think um, the, uh, and I think as we saw with the so-called pivot to Asia in the Obama days, it was the same people as they went about their work on AUKUS, uh, which I'm not disagreeing with, you know, I'm not, this isn't about AUKUS, it's how they rolled this out. Europe or other allies were an afterthought. They were focused solely on getting this thing out, getting it out quietly without leaks. They were focused totally on the event itself. And if there was collateral damage in Europe or elsewhere, they'd handle that later. Uh, and I think that's what happened. And I think the people who do Europe in the administration, most of that team was not in place. There were just a handful of people uh, who were doing Europe in, in the White House and in the bureaucracy. And I think their voices weren't listened to, uh, were dismissed. Uh, and, I, so it, and I don't think it was an anti-Europe thing. Uh, like Obama administration, which I worked in, it wasn't, they weren't anti-Europe the way Trump was. But I think they um, had other priorities than Europe. And if Europe, if the relations with Europe got in the way, that didn't bother them as much as it might have bothered another administration. That's that's kind of where what my take is. I have now lost lots of friends who are in the administration, and I hope they forgive me, but that's just that's the way I, I see it. Yeah, Jim, I, yeah, we've talked a lot about this on this podcast and off the air. And yeah, I think you're you're right on, Jim. But we're getting close to the end of time. But Yana, you just raised like such an important question is like, to what extent does Washington see Europe as a partner? And I think on that question, China is going to be a big part of that, right? And so I, I, you know, I wanted to just pull that final thread of this conversation that we haven't gotten to, which is looking forward, you know, given whatever coalition we have, you know, what, what will, what do you think, what do you expect Berlin's position on China will be? Will there be more willingness um, to be a partner on China and pushing back? Or is this going to continue to kind of be a little bit of a give and take and dancing around the issue? Or, you know, what, you know I guess, what do you expect coming from Berlin on the China issue? So, so maybe um, we can start with you. Yeah, Sophia. Let's start with Sophia. Right. So I think I'm not going to talk too much about the Merkel course on China because I think we, we're broadly aware of her course. If you are a fan, you say that she has tried to balance Europe's and Germany's difficult position between two poles. If you're a critic, you say that she's pursued a sort of naive mercantilism um, and this followed the belief of change through trade uh, to an extent that no longer fits today's realities. Um, both Laschet and Scholz have largely subscribed to her views. Um, Laschet has argued that the West should resist slipping into a Cold War mentality. Uh, he's been very critical about speaking uh, out on human rights on China. Scholz also, I think, is instinctively not hawkish. He's criticized what he's called decoupling fantasies. He's uh, cautiously supported the CHI, the Comprehensive Agreement on Investment with China, which Merkel was the, the chief architect of. He's been pretty dovish on Huawei. Nevertheless, I think we might see some changes uh, in German-China policy. And that's just because uh, the general German consensus on China is changing and because uh, particularly a center-left coalition is going to orient itself more 
to align itself with Europe and Europe tends to be a bit more hawkish on China than uh, Germany is. So what do I mean? I think two elements have contributed to a sharpening of the tone uh, in Berlin vis-a-vis Beijing. One, China's role throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, security crackdown in Hong Kong, the human rights violations, um, those have resonated particularly, I think, with uh, people in the Green Party and the FDP, but also the outside Chinese reactions to the EU sanctions have altered, I think, the perception of China among uh, a lot of decision makers in Germany, um, even in the Social Democrat Party. Uh, and finally, business uh, has actually positioned itself quite critically uh, on China, more critical than the CDU, which purportedly um, has defended German industry's interests. Um, secondly, I think that many in Berlin have understood that this Biden presidency, as you said, is not going to alter the structural shift in Euro's foreign policy priorities away from Europe uh, towards China and the Pacific. They see this bipartisan consensus in the US on countering Chinese influence, and they have received the Biden administration's message that it wants to coordinate China policy with the Europeans, right? Be that with uh, Brussels, with the EU, or through NATO. Um, and while I don't think that Berlin decision makers perceive China as a conventional military threat. They do worry about the damage that Beijing could inflict on Europe's prosperity and ability to act. They're concerned that China can undermine democratic stability, right, through non-military means, economic coercion, disinformation tactics. China is present in Germany um, in those fields, not as much as Russia uh, at this point still, but we do worry about that. That being said, any future German government is going to struggle to consolidate a stricter China policy with Germany's economic interests, but there are already signs that the stance on China is changing, whether that be on Huawei, where we finally aligned ourselves with our European allies, uh, whether that be on even our Indo-Pacific strategy, where we've sent a symbolic frigate <laughs> to the region. Um, then not think, uh, land in the um, Shanghai Harbor. <laughs> Sure, we can have a whole conversation about that frigate. I don't think that the military presence in the Indo-Pacific is going to be the core of Germany's China policy. I don't think that's where our added value is. I don't think that's necessarily what uh, Washington would expect as far as I understand uh, from Germany. But I think there are other policy areas where we will, where the world does look to Berlin <laughs> to uh, become a bit more aware of, of China's geoeconomic uh, threat potential, you know? And there are a few decisions just to end with that you and your we all can can look out for one is how germany will uh, go on with the kai with the eu comprehensive agreement on investment i think parts of the SPD-CDU may want to sign that the greens and the liberals are more critical how we will go on with 5g and huawei how we will go on on taiwan are the liberals and the greens going to be able to set the a more hawkish course there and then rhetorically, to what extent are we willing to align ourselves with the US? I think that's the, the element that we have most focused on is almost the element that's the least relevant because uh, the Greens and the Liberals are most um, openly aligning themselves with this um, conceptual narrative of the Biden administration of the confrontation between uh, democracies and authoritarian regimes, the SPD and the CDU. I'm more hesitant, but I think what really matters are the policies that they're going to pursue. And uh, there, I think, yeah, as we've said, on, on trade, on investment screening on Huawei, we might see some change. Yeah, that was that was really helpful. And, and, and in, in forums like the Trade and Technology Council, too. I mean, I, the United States has been eager to kind of use that as a, 
countering China, but probably better to focus. I mean, I think what you're saying, Sophia, is focusing on some of the pragmatic areas where we can cooperate and not always framing it as in such in 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 such ideological terms um, is you know there might be an opportunity for more progress in ways that matter and get us to the same outcome. I think so. Um, for one thing, I think Berlin is completely unprepared, and that is a military confrontation uh, in the Indo-Pacific between China and the United States, and what that would mean for for Germany and Europe, and uh, yeah, the, the fallout of this. I think this is completely. Um, under underlooked in Germany, so we don't discuss this uh, often, and uh, we don't. We there is no strategic awareness, I think, which is, uh, I think, a problem. Well, this has been a really fantastic conversation. I think we could probably go on for another hour, but um, you know, I think just the the views and the perspectives that you provided coming out of Berlin helps us all understand much better what to expect. Um, it is a really fraught, difficult time in the transatlantic relationship, elections in Germany, elections coming in France, there's a lot going on. And it's just really helpful, I think, for I know for me, but I'm sure for Brussels Sprouts listeners to hear these views. So thank you for taking the time to join us. Um, and I hope that we'll be able to do it again, maybe after a coalition is formed, and we can have some more concrete things to say about where where this is headed. So hopefully we can reconvene then. Yeah, thank you so much. This has just been delightful. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Anytime. This was fun.